This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Let's get a Bible in our hands. Let's open up our Bible apps, if whatever it is, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand real quick. We want to have a Bible in your hands. I'm going to tell you this. Titus has done us a lot of favors. Can you say amen to that? Uh, We have learned a ton from Titus. Today is our last day in the book of Titus. Next week, we're going to have just kind of a standalone uh, sermon. And then the following week, as we start in, in, in June, we're starting two months of going through and praying through Psalms together. So we're going to be studying different Psalms um, in, throughout, throughout the summer. And then we're going to have times for us to pray and learn how to pray through the Psalms. And so it's going to be an exciting time in the summer. And then in the fall, we're going into the Beatitudes. So today is our last, our last time in Titus together. But Titus has done us a lot of favors. Um, I want to kind of take a minute on our last sermon here to run through quickly what we have learned. Uh, we, We talked about the very first week, the foundation that the gospel gives us. The foundation that the gospel gives us and how it forms us. And it's Paul speaking to his son in the ministry, Timothy, and he's encouraging, I mean Titus, and he's encouraging him in this work that he has to do. But the way that he encourages him is through the gospel, that he's secure, that he is, he's, a, he's a servant of Christ. And then he tells him that you are my son in the ministry. And that starts this theme that you see rolling through the book of Titus, that this relationship that we have as a church is a family relationship. And the way that he speaks of Titus is in family terms. And the way that he speaks of the church is in family terms. And the way that he speaks of those who are, are uh, divisive and the way that he speaks of those who are greedy and those who are trying to come against or bring division in the church, he speaks of them in ways of enemies or outsiders or those who are wrapped up in different things and you're going to see that again today but he says you have a task to do and that task is you need to establish elders in all of these congregations throughout Crete and elders are those father figures if you will those ones who are to lead with character and not with this greed in their hearts they're supposed to care about the community once again there's this family aspect that he's bringing forth then the following week we went into this idea of godliness in the home and he talks about how older and younger should be in relationship and men and women and how they interact with each other once again showing that the church is a family and how they interact is as a family a community that is displaying that godliness to the world around them that people who live in community or live in that family that there's a purpose for that family and that family is to display the gospel in that community and then we talked about in chapter four how we should live in the world around us that we should live submissive and humility in submission and humility in the world 
And that through the way that we posture ourselves in the world around us, in chapter uh, 3, we talked about this. Um, We started to see that through the people of God living in submission and humility in the world, that the gospel is displayed and people can see and know the gospel through our good works. We talked about this last week, but I want to reiterate it because it's going to set the, po- the, it's going to set the tone for this. I wanted you to see the pattern through everything that we studied and how Paul is addressing Titus as a son. He's calling them to live as a family on mission because much of discipleship is reparenting, refamilying, and reminding. We talked about this last week. Much of discipleship is reparenting, refamilying, and reminding. Much about how important it is for us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. For us not, for us to be outside of the church and community. For us to live on our own. It's a dangerous place for us to be because God calls us not only into relationship with Himself, but in relationship with His family, His people. And because of the kinds of dysfunction we have in our lives and in our families, we need to understand that God has called us to to refamily each other. The family is important. The other thing that we need to see in this is that I, I want to give you a quote from Leslie Newbegin. This hit me hard this week. Um, he said this: "It is less important to ask a Christian what he or she believes about the Bible than it is to inquire what he or she does with it." We can sit around and talk about our beliefs all day long we could sit around and talk about what we believe in our theology all day long and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it but when it gets to the bottom of it those beliefs should so shape you that our question should be what does that belief do to us what does it do through us how does it live in our lives and we talked about this the last weeks as we talked about dedicating our lives to living out the gospel to being on mission to doing what is excellent and profitable remember last week we went through these four things you'll see them on the screen that God cares for us That God has changed us. That God fills us. And that He's made us His heir. And if those things are true, and if we're saying those things to each other one over and over again, and we're speaking these truths, and we're, we're, we're singing these truths, and we're reminding each other of these truths, if these things are true, that God cares for us, that we've been cleaned and changed, that He's filled us, and that He's made us His heir, that should change the way that we live our lives. That should change the way we treat others around us. Remember this idea that we are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. We we ended with that last week. We are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. That God has saved us through the riches of His grace. God has done the work for us. By grace we have been saved. Not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. That's good news for us. Because we know we cannot save ourselves. We know that we don't have the power to save ourselves. That God's plan of salvation, He saved us 
by grace through faith. What is faith? Us trusting in Him and not in ourselves. So it's this rejection of trusting ourselves and our good works and just thinking, I can do this. But it's trusting in Him. And when we trust in Him, that grace not only saves us, it fills us. His Spirit is in us. And now He begins to live His life through us. And we intentionally, if you will, we participate with the Spirit in doing good works. And we need to commit ourselves to doing those good works. We're so changed by His grace, so saved through faith and trust in Him that that produces this kind of good work. Now, If you're going to commit yourselves to the gospel, if you're going to commit yourselves to good works, and if it is like it says in the verse we ended in last week, in verse 8, where it says this is excellent and profitable to commit yourself to these things. If you're saved by grace through faith for good works, and you need to commit yourself to these good works, If there's something that you're going to commit yourself to be involved with, then you also need to watch out for the things that pull you away from being involved with what you should be involved with because we're prone to get involved with things that distract us from the things we should be involved with. And today, Paul is going to end this book with not just saying, here's what you should commit yourself to. He's going to say to Titus, And to the churches in Crete, here's what you should not be involved with. Let's stand as we read Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. I wish we could end this series with a little bit of an uptick. Because this whole thing has been so amazing. But this is going to sound like he's ending with a uh, pretty harsh warning here. And uh, hopefully we can see what he's getting at as the Lord speaks to us here. Verse 9 through 15, and remember why we're standing, that we're standing out of respect to His Word and because we want to posture ourselves in a position to remember this is His Word and we need to listen. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis. Right, see, I'm, I'm doing my best to even pronounce those. There, uh, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and and to not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. You may be seated. Church, I'm going to have to fly through this today Um, but the reason why I wanted to set up the family thing is because everything you say yes to and commit to that is excellent and profitable things means you have to say no to something else you realize when you say yes to something you're saying no to something else 
Every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. And what we don't realize is when we say yes to everything else, we don't realize the things we are saying no to might be the things that you should be saying yes to. And the biggest excuse that we have, I say we because I could say them, but it's us. The biggest excuse that we have in our lives that we love to lean on is how busy we are. Whenever somebody asks you, hey, what's going on? Oh, busy, busy, busy. Just busy. Just keeping those wheels spinning. Just busy, busy, busy. Even if you're not, you got to say it. You know what I mean? Just busy. The other thing is, whenever confronted on how we're living our lives that we like to use is not only busyness, we love to use how the circumstances or the drama of our lives is keeping us from doing the work of God. We love using things that are fruitless, unprofitable, and foolish as our excuses for why we're not doing what is excellent and good. The reality of this is Paul is saying, you need to commit to this. But in order to commit to this, you need to understand there's things you have to say no to. There's things you need to avoid. In order to be committed to something else, you got to say no to something else. You can't do everything. Let me ask you a question. Are you a part of church because of you and what you can get out of it or because you're doing it for the unity of the body of Christ? Most of us attend church and I use the word attend because I don't think you're in the church or a part of the church. You just attend a church. Most of us attend a church because of what we can get out of it. Example mean they got a good youth ministry. They got a good kids ministry. Maybe we like the band. Maybe we don't. Or maybe the preaching is our style or maybe not. Or maybe it's just something where we need to get a blessing this week and so I need to go. All of it has to do with what, is I, what am I getting out of it? Because of the consumerism in our culture, church has become just another product to be consumed rather than a family to be a part of. And inside of that, because of the consumerism of our culture and our hearts, what ends up happening inside of us is nothing weighs upon us in the reality of, listen, not I'll leave this church because of what I get. I'm not getting enough out of it. I'm not getting fed. They don't have the ministries that I need. I need this. 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 And most of what we do when it comes to church is revolved of like how we shop or how we picked our best closing stores or, or what places we go or what food restaurants we have a part of. And the reality of that is we're not actively seeking out to be united with the body of Christ by giving ourselves and serving others and loving and loving laying ourselves down. Most people talk about themselves as if they're outside of the church. Have you ever done that? Have you ever sat around and said, the church does this? The church does this. Rather than, 
Here's what I see we, us doing as a family. We sit around and go, the church is always doing this. I've heard this so often. I've heard these kinds of statements more than, than you realize. They say things like that. This is how they talk about, man, the church, they, they always say uh, things like, uh, the church is not helping me. The church, they never call me. The church, they're always doing this or, or not doing that or they don't do this thing and I'm passionate about it. I, I really want to go to a church where they are doing this. They don't believe like I do, meaning they have political things that I, I don't bend this way or there's people who don't. And, and, and this is that we don't line up theologically and, and, and so I don't believe this or that and, and they believe this. Here's the problem with you talking about the church like it's a they and not a we. Maybe those who talk about the church like they're not a part of it aren't. Maybe they're not. Maybe they are outsiders who are critiquing the church and not a part of the family. Maybe those who sit in judgment outside of the church and accuse the church are taking the posture of Satan, the accuser of the brethren. The reality is, so many of us have critiques of the church rather than understanding that if we're a part of a family, it's not them, it's us. I, I, I'll tell you this, I know for a fact there are things that the church needs to grow in. Us the church as a whole, there's things that are sinful and wrong and there are problems in the church. But I'm going to tell you this, my beliefs on the, ch on the church are not formed based upon what the church is doing. It's formed based upon the reality that Christ died for the church and is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And the reality that I love the church is not based upon what they can do for me, but the reality that Christ died for the church and loves them. What people do is they want the church to be centered around them rather than centered around the gospel. Meaning, I have needs, I have passions, and I have struggles. And instead of them wanting to be submissive, they sit in critique and criticize and argue and, un and justify their unfruitfulness. Here's what you need to hear. This church is not for you. This church is not centered around you. The church is to be centered around Jesus, and when it is committed to doing the work of Jesus, it will produce true and loving service, but it doesn't mean you will always get what you want out of it. Any church that is centered around a set of needs or a set of people or a set of, of passions or desires ends up straying from the gospel. And the reality is most people want a church that is centered around them and gets frustrated when it's not. No one leaves or gets removed from a church and goes, you know what, that was my bad. Nobody does that. Nobody leaves or gets removed from a church and goes, you know what, that was my sin. Everyone leaves a church and blames the church. 
When someone wants the community to be centered around them and is not getting enough attention and wants more attention, they spend their time trying to rally a troop that gets controversy and contention and gets people distracted. And what Paul is calling that is unprofitable and worthless. You see, here's the reality. When you are equally passionate about every issue, you diminish your ability to be passionate about the gospel. When all you want to do is have everybody hear your opinion about every topic and you are lifting up every opinion as equal in importance, when you throw in there how big the gospel is, what people go is, oh, well, there just goes this opinionated person just throwing out another opinion. You see, I've seen division happen over these kinds of things. People who are passionate about what food you should eat and what food you shouldn't eat. And they spend all their time promoting some way you should eat. I've seen churches divide. I've seen us get in contention over parenting techniques. Parents who get passionate about or people who aren't even parents who get passionate about a way they think you should parent somebody. And preaching a gospel of how you should parent. Causing division. Public schools or homeschools. Hey, listen, we're allowed to have an opinion whether we should go to public schools or homeschools. But I've seen people get in division and not be able to be united with the church because some of their kids don't do the same kind of schooling that the other kids do. Another one for, for me is you see a lot of people who are so passionate about what's going to happen in the end times. That they just go, listen, is the rapture happening? Is this, what's the end times? Do this, is this a sign of the end times? And they just go around constantly talking about the end times. Causing division. About things they don't know. People who are like, listen, we need to talk about sex and sexuality more listen people have problems with pornography and i do too you need to talk about pornography more or, or we need to have marriage classes or we need to have abortion talks or we need to have programs or curriculum on this and they latch their whole identity to a curriculum we need to do this book we need to say this we need to have this and they cause division over a book outside of scripture political stances listen all of these things, they could be good things, but they are not the gospel. And if they are lifted up as the thing that we should spend all of our time hashing through, and, 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 and those people are getting together and causing division, then they're elevating and dividing and causing contention and their strife. Here's what we start to see. What we start to see is a church that's not on mission and just sits around and argues and fights and divides and segments. Listen, um, I want to read you this quote that I think is really helpful by Tim Chester. He says this, In our individualistic culture, we value the individual over the community. So self-expression is our highest value. 
Everyone has a right to express their own opinion, we tell ourselves. But Christ died that we might be one. He died to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another. Do you realize that what we are told in this culture is that self-expression is of the highest importance? Share your opinion, share your thoughts, put it out there, let everybody know what you believe and be passionate about it and you have a right to your opinion, you have a right to your thoughts and this kind of self-expression builds this whole hatred and you hear people going around all the time going i got all these haters everybody hates me i just got haters haters gonna hate they all want to stop me they all want to come against me and the reality is no no one hates you they're just doing what you're doing elevating themselves when you live in a culture where everybody cares about themselves everybody hates anybody who doesn't agree with them when you care about your thoughts and your opinions more than anybody else, and then you call everybody your haters, that's what takes place. Immediately, anybody who doesn't agree with you is your hater, but they're just doing what you're doing. They're prideful and arrogant and only care about themselves and their opinions. That's what an individualistic culture promotes. You see, hear, hear me on this. Wherever there is this kind of bickering, it is about a person trying to build their own kingdom. Listen, you don't want to just be the only one who believes what you believe. You've got to get a crew who's in your kingdom who loves your thoughts. That's why you've got to share it on Facebook. That's why you've got to go talk to people about it. That's why you've got to make an enemy of people who don't. Like, man, that crew, they don't believe it. And you've got to start dividing people so that you could build your own kingdom with your own little subjects. And here's what Paul says about them. I, I don't know if, if you're, you're sensing Paul um, not happy, maybe. Look at, look, at, look at what he says. But avoid foolish controversy and genealogies and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Those two words. But then he says this. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing to do with them knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. People who are divisive rarely see it. Rarely see it. Why? Because they're warped. And here's what ends up happening. Somebody gets in division and then starts ignoring them and discipline takes place and they get removed and all these kinds of things happen and what ends up happening is in your mind what you do is go, listen, I think I could fix them. And you engage and get off mission and say yes to trying to fix somebody rather than ignoring them. Why? Why do we do that? Because we hate church discipline. We hate it. Most of us don't even go to churches where church discipline is even an option. Let me talk to you about church discipline. Church discipline only happens when you see the church as a family. It only happens when you see church as a family. Because family needs to have discipline in order for true love and protection to take place. 
Family needs to have discipline in order for true love and protection to happen. And when you see the church as a family, you understand that there must be discipline. And I'm going to tell you this. Most churches do not spend time with church discipline because they don't really care about the holiness or the, or the unity of the people. What they care about is butts in the seat, tithe numbers, organization, right? But if you're going to be a part of a community where there's a family, you need to understand discipline because this sounds really harsh when Paul says to Titus, listen, you're going to go and establish these families and inside of that there's going to be warped people who are going to come in and try to cause division. And here's how you deal with them. Uh, confront them once, confront them twice, and then kick them out. This falls in line with, with Matthew 18 where it says, go to them, bring the whole group, and then after that, you excommunicate. There's different places in scripture where it talks about getting to a place where somebody who will not repent needs to be ignored fighting with somebody who likes to argue only fuels them to fight more the only way to deal with somebody who likes to cause dissension is ignore them because ignoring them takes the power away from them warn them don't argue with them Warn them, and then warn them a second time, and then it says, cut them off. Now, this is difficult because a lot of people think of love, and when they think of love, they think of no harshness. People always think discipline is too harsh. I have, we have done multiple church discipline cases in this church, multiple. It is the most painful difficult thing that you can ever experience but if you're committed to being a family and you're committed to church unity if there is not real discipline that's taking a place then you're not committed to the gospel we've gone through the process of warning and correcting and there's unrepentance and then we have to discipline which means we have to excommunicate there has not been one time where where the community responds and looks at the elders and goes man they really handled that right. There's some people that go, wow, we trust the elders. We trust what's happening in this family. We trust the fathers that are in place. We care for unity. There are some people, but most people go, man, that was too harsh. They weren't involved with it. They have no clue what was actually happening. They don't know the unrepentance, but there's an idea of saying, man, that is too harsh. There's always this idea within us as we look at somebody getting disciplined that we look at them and we immediately go to, I would have handled that better. Which means a few things. When we think discipline is too harsh, here's what we believe. We don't understand how serious sin is. Two, we don't think discipline is actually loving. Three, we would rather judge the person who has to correct than the one who's in sin. Four, people don't believe church unity is important. Here's the reality. Because of our own sin, when we see somebody being disciplined, we immediately go to, that could be me. And I wouldn't want to be handled that way. Church discipline is so serious and so important and should only happen 
as the church has a heart to confront and deal with sin and care for unity and discipline people and their hearts be broken and every time you have to discipline somebody it is extremely painful and difficult and hear me on this i hate doing it it's not fun But there's so many places throughout Scripture that call us to a spot where someone who needs to be disciplined, who is causing controversy and unrepentant sin, that they need to be put in discipline, meaning they need to be separated from the family of God, not reaping the benefits of the family. Why doesn't it surprise me that people think discipline is too harsh? Well, the first place we see discipline taking place is God disciplining Adam and Eve. And I was in a class the other day, and they were talking about that discipline. And we were sitting around and and talking about how they ate of a piece of fruit. They ate of a piece of fruit. And one person says, man, they just ate fruit. Now, let's be honest. If any of you all in here eat fruit, you do not feel like you should be kicked out of God's presence, right? You're actually like, I did something good today. I chose fruit over a bonbon, right? Or a, or a Twinkie, right? I'd made the healthy choice. They took a, a piece of fruit and ate it, and God kicks them out of the garden, curses them. And one person in my class said this. That seems a little harsh. They just ate fruit. The reality is, people look at God's discipline all throughout Scripture, and if they're honest, they even critique His discipline. Why? They think He's too harsh. They don't think sin is that big of a deal. And they relate to the one who is in sin rather than the one who is giving discipline and the one who actually loves and cares. And most of the time when we are looking at church discipline cases, we find ourselves reaching out to the one who was disciplined rather than ignoring them. Why? Because we would rather build our own kingdom where we get people who depend upon us and we think we can help them and the leaders couldn't. where we are actually fueling more dissension and we are fueling more problems because of the pride that's in our own heart. And the reality is discipline is messy and when it happens, it is painful. And when we walk through it, there needs to be multiple people involved with it. There needs to be so many levels of accountability. And yes, there has been cases of harshness with church leaders, but the reality of this is Unity is important, and in order to protect unity, there must be discipline. Church, can I I just encourage you in this? Don't get involved with contentious people. Avoid them. Don't try to out-argue them. Avoid them. Look at what Paul says in 12 through 13, and then we're going to end with this. Paul says that he wants them to send these people. He wants to see these different people, that names I couldn't really pronounce. But there's one name that sticks off the page, Apollos. There's another place in Scripture where we hear of this guy, Apollos, and that's 1 Corinthians 3, 3 through 9, where he talks about 
he's correcting this church in Corinth. And they say, you still are of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh behaving in a human way? He says, for when you say, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? For then is Apoll- for what is Apollos and what is Paul? They're servants whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos waters, but God gives the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and the one who waters, each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. And here's what he's saying. Listen. He's saying, send Apollos, I want to hang out with him and be friends. But in Corinth, the people of Corinth who were living in fleshly way were trying to divide Paul and Apollos and say, I'm following Paul and I'm following Apollos. And they were fighting over who their leader was. I don't listen to this person, I listen to this person. And Paul is writing to them and going, you're acting so fleshly and childish and immature. You are making divisions of things that are not even divisions. And here we see Titus, in Titus, him saying, hey, send my friend Apollos over. We're going to hang out. The church is making divisions about even the kinds of leaders that they're following, and that division is not even there between Paul and Apollos. They're friends. Why does he write this? Paul is showing that there's no competition between him and Apollos. That it's not even about him and Apollos. It's about the work of God. And verse 14 pulls this all together. Look at what verse 14 says. And he says, And let them learn to devote themselves to good works as to help cases of urgent need and not be fruitful. Here's what he's saying. The unity of the church is essential if we're going to live on the mission of God. And here's why you see the people of God not living on mission. Because they're wasting all their time fighting each other. They're doing unprofitable things. They've said yes to sitting around and trying to to baby and and, and go after the ones who just want to cause fights. The ones who are warped and just want to cause dissension. The ones who are not about the mission of God, they're about themselves. And we just keep feeding into the egos and self-centeredness and warped behavior of ones that are causing dissension and division. And I realize that takes so much discernment and so much of the Spirit to walk through through that but hear me on this it is our infighting and division that's keeping us from doing the work of the mission the reason why we're not doing good works is because we're wasting our time doing things that are controversial and devoting our energy and giving our attention to divisive people rather than doing the works that God's called us to Titus 1 says we should have knowledge of the truth with accord with godliness. Titus 2.7 says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus 2.14 says, purifying a people who are zealous for good works. Titus 2.16 says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus 3.1 says, you need to be ready for every good work. Titus 3.8 says, be careful to devote yourself to good works. Titus 3.14 says learn to devote yourself to good works could it be that Paul is writing to his family in Crete and writing to Titus and has heard about a church who is distracted from doing good works and is distracted in ways that makes them unhealthy and they're so about themselves and infighting and not living their lives according to the gospel 
Church, I, I, I want you to hear this from me. I love seeing new people come into this community. I love being a part of a church that is healthy and growing. And in order for us to be healthy, we've got to walk in unity. But there are times and moments as you're walking in unity and pouring yourselves out there where you see someone who's just divisive and about themselves. Here's what it says. Here's what we should do. This is how we should handle it. And I don't think you should make that decision on your own. I think there should be unity in how we walk through this and accountability. But I want to ask this question. Instead of us going, let's think of divisive people, I'd love to just end with this. How do I know if I'm divisive? First, let me ask you this. Are you striving for the unity of God's people? Or are you always finding a way to be in the middle of every drama that happens in the church? Do you always feel like your opinion needs to be heard? Or do you think that all of your opinions are just equally important to the gospel and you've elevated some things in your heart and mind that may be important to you and that you should have an opinion about, but it shouldn't cause division? Do you see yourself or do you spend time slandering other people, calling people on the phone, sending emails or texts, or talking about other people, trying to rally support against others? Are you talking about how no one understands you and do you find yourself having to have people set boundaries with you? Do you have a hard time focusing on doing good works because you're so wrapped up in constant controversy in your life? Let me ask you this question. Do you have close, godly friends who are on mission and passionate about Jesus? I mean friends where you guys are doing the work of the ministry together or are the people around you just as unhealthy as you are? If a lot of those line up, there might be places in you in which you're causing division rather than striving for health. And, and the reality of this is, church, we as a family, we need to be united. We need to be united. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our city and for the sake of the good works that God has called us to. And where we find unity is around this table. Around the very person and work of Jesus. That's where we find unity. What I love about communion is when I come and take this cup, I know that this is the body broken. This is Jesus' body broken. And this is His blood. And as I'm eating this piece of this broken piece of His body, and you're eating it, it's even a symbol of how His body brings us together. That His body was broken so that we could be united. That the pieces come together as we eat of this. That as we eat at this table, we're fellowshipping with Jesus and with one another. And it is important for us to see that Jesus' last prayer was for our unity, for the unity of His people.
That means we have to learn to lay down some things and not make everything equally as important. That means we've got to learn to love and serve each other as Christ has loved and served us. That means that maybe we should be most passionate about the gospel and His work and loving other people. And when it comes to places where we're just totally wrapped up, we've got to learn the times when God puts leaders and elders in our lives and says, listen, let's not focus on that. Let's ignore that and let's get back to work. Let's ignore that and let's let the Spirit of God do work and bring them back to repentance. But let's ignore that and let's get back to work. Let's get back on mission. So as we come to this table and we sing this song, my prayer is today that we'll hear the warning. I know we'd rather end with an uptick, but I hope we'd hear the warning. And I'd hope we'd commit ourselves to saying, I want to be a part of the people of God, united with my brothers and sisters. Church, the table is open. Let's respond. Let's pray together. Let's let the Spirit of God work. And let's sing. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.